Wake up, it's time for episode 21 of The Mountain and the Word. of Washington State, you are listening to The Mountain and the Word, an audio podcast show from the Mount St. Helens Creation Center, featuring news, views, and information with a biblical and scientific perspective. The Mountain and the Word is produced and presented by creation speaker Paul Taylor and is available for download from our website, mshcreationcenter.org. podcast program uh, which comes from the Mount St. Helens Creation Center and uh, this podcast program episode 21 is released as an audio podcast uh, but again for the third time now we're also releasing this as a video podcast so you can see pictures as well remember I'm guaranteeing that we'll get the audio podcast done the, each episode may not be a video podcast but we'll do it if it's at all possible well one of the things that we want to talk about at the Mount St. Helens Creation Center is the whole subject of apologetics. Apologetics is extremely important, how we defend the Christian faith. Uh, defending the Christian faith is important. Creationism is one of those methods by which we defend the Christian faith. So it, creationism is a subset of apologetics and therefore how we do creationism, if you like, matters. And I've talked a lot on this podcast before about the whole business of presuppositional apologetics, how it is that it uh, makes far more biblical sense to be able to start from a solid foundation of uh, accepting that God exists and that the Bible is true. One of the things that I've been concerned about lately is that when we say that, uh, people think that perhaps it's something of an intellectual acceptance that God exists, but it isn't. It's about knowing God personally. And I've started to become worried as I've read what certain, uh, what we might call cage stage presuppositionalists have said, you know, and I look at discussion forums on the internet and particularly on Facebook and, and on Twitter and so on. I'm seeing people who, who really want to use this methodology and are talking about what method can I use that'll be from a presuppositional background. And I am getting very concerned that they don't actually seem to understand um, or, or know something about the person of God himself. Uh, there are people who don't get it. So they're, they're on these forums and they're recommending um, apologetics ideas which are not presuppositional because these are uh, they're not coming from a, from a biblical background now perhaps one of the best known of the popularizers of presuppositional apologetics would be my good friend Saiten Bruggenkate and because I've become concerned about this whole business of what, what I'd call cage stage presuppositionalists I wanted to um, have a conversation with him and see if he felt the same way that there were these people who hadn't really got the whole idea of what uh, presuppositional apologetics was about, even though they were adhering to that. And it rather appears that, uh, that he agrees with me, so we filmed a conversation on this subject and that's the substance of this program now. So this is the first time I've attempted to do a video interview via Skype. It seems to have worked okay. Not all the um, 
audio has been perfect but uh, it seems to have worked out okay so uh, sit back and watch this uh, interview this conversation between myself and uh, Saiten Brudenkate okay and I've um, got on the line with me uh, well via Skype I've got uh, uh, the apologist Saiten Brudenkate who's a good friend of mine and Sai, you're speaking to me all the way from uh, from Canada how are things That's are correct, Ontario, Canada. I'm about two and a half hours from Detroit, straight to east from Detroit, and then you'll run into where I am. That's right, and uh, that's great. And of course, many people interviewing you uh, will often say, "Well, what's it like there in the frozen wastelands of Canada?" But I haven't looked at the map today. But it's quite possible you're on a more southerly latitude than I am. I think I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I do believe so, Paul. I think you're further north than I am. I, I um a nephew who went to school in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and they were asking him if he was going to go north for the holidays. He says, actually, I'm going south. <laughs> they don't understand that. He'd have to go south to Detroit and then go east from there. So it was, uh, it was quite humorous. Yes. Yeah, cause this is and we know how good Americans are with their geography. That's the beautiful thing about it, Paula. We could joke about Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, two subjects of the Queen. Uh, discussing. <laughs> uh, well, well, I made a comment the other day on Facebook about the King's English because somebody had said that I spelled favorite wrong because I threw a U in there. But I said, no, you know, and they said the only king is Jesus Christ. And I said, who do you think I was talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. When, uh, you know, the King James Version was good enough for uh, the Apostle Paul, it's certainly good enough for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we better not open that can of worms. <laughs> Okay, well, well, Sai, you're an apologist, uh, uh, which means that you defend the faith, and we've talked a lot on this program about defending the faith, the importance of that. Creationism is a, uh, in, in my view, it's, it's nothing if it's not a subset of apologetics. There's clearly more to defending the faith than just creationism, but a creationist is certainly defending the faith. And there's a right and there's a wrong way of doing that, in our opinion. So... Um, You've been looking at defending the faith for a long time, Sai, but uh, some years ago you came to a real change in your opinion about how the, how the faith should be defended. Just tell us a little bit about that, would you please? Well, I, well, it's interesting, Paul, that you call me an apologist. I mean, that's what I call myself as well. I'm an apologist. Yeah, but one thing that's interesting about... <laughs> it's not confusing <laughs> school, but... Uh... <laughs> That's right, and that's exactly my point, is that there is no office of apologist in Scripture. Yeah. Why is there no office of apologist? And I would say there's, there's no office of apologist for the same reason that there's no office of love your neighborist. <laughs> yep. See, we're commanded to love our neighbors, but we're supposed to be able to know how to do it. Yes. And we're commanded to give a defense of our faith, but as Christians, we're supposed to be able to know how to do it. Yes. So as an apologist, what I do is not go out and teach people how to defend their faith. I teach them how not to defend their faith. And because all Christians, all believers should be able to do it. I don't have to teach you how to love your neighbor. You know how to do that. So the transition for me was actually doing it wrong, was doing it in a way that, you know, I had to be an apologist. I had to learn how to defend my faith. But by the grace of God, I was shown that I was doing it wrong. I was talking about something that I didn't even believe in. I was talking about a probabilistic God. And if you look at all the evidential type arguments that we normally use, they try to argue for a probability. Look at all of this evidence. Therefore, there is most likely some kind of deity. Then we're going to use your reasoning to try and conclude which God it is. I say that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible certainly exists and has certainly revealed himself. Now, that's, uh, that's, that's great. And that's one of the, uh, uh, the drums that I keep banging on about here, uh, the, the, the thing that I'm trying to uh, tell people here. And um, we're going to go into some detail about some of the recent developments, some of the things that uh, we'll talk about some specific issues where some people are getting things wrong in the way that they defend their faith. But, um, you know, you and I have known each other for a, a, a few years. We met when I came to the United States. And um, one of the things that I think uh, we noticed, well, from my point of view, we, we, we met at a, in, in Florida, in Pensacola, in Florida, when I was working with uh, the Minister of Creation today uh, alongside Eric Hovind. And uh, you came down, uh, you traveled down from Canada uh, to discuss a few things, to do some work with us, to do an interview on the TV show. And um, I'd been um, thinking through presuppositional apologetics, uh, which we haven't defined on this show, but I have defined it earlier. We'll come to it again. Uh, you had obviously been for a few years sort of thinking through presuppositional apologetics. And I think from my point of view, I don't know how it was for you, it was just a, 
refreshing change to meet someone else for the first time and realize that we have the same apologetic that these things we'd thought through from different angles really but we've got the same conclusion amen brother and, and i will add one thing i know we're going to get into the topic of evidences from a presuppositional standpoint but i'll put it on record on your show that i believe that you are the best person in the world who defines and uses evidences from a presuppositional standpoint. And I still remember sitting in that uh, audience in um, in Ohio when you were at the Ohio Fire Conference, and I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, for instance, the one that I remember that stands out is the fossil that you showed. Whereas most Christians, most evidentialists, would use this fossil to and somehow prove that the Bible was true. And what you said is, do you know what this fossil shows? Do you know what this fossil is evidences of? That we're in big trouble. That God has judged the world, and the Bible says he's going to do it again. Right. I mean, that's what those evidences are for. It's not to prove the veracity of the Bible. We don't need that. But like I say, we, we, we'll get into that later. But I will go on record as saying that I believe that you use evidences the best from a presuppos presuppositional standpoint. And people constantly ask me, how do I use evidences? I just send them Go see Paul Taylor. Go read his book. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that, Si. Thank you for saying that. And, uh, you know, the thing that I've appreciated about you as well, this is something I'm trying to do. I don't know that I'm doing it successfully as you, but uh, I, I know when I was at one conference um, where you were speaking in, uh, in Florida, at Milton in Florida, somebody else in the audience said to me, well, Si puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. And... This is very important. And, you know, uh, I have said before on the show, but I'll say it again in your presence, that the, the first thing that people need to do when they're trying to understand about defending the faith is to make sure they watch uh, your video, How to Answer the Fool. And uh, it, it's, it's just so important to get to, uh, uh, to, be, to defend the faith in that way. And as I've said, uh, I think, before, I don't know any other person doing apologetics in, um, with the same sort of evangelistic zeal for preaching the gospel that, that you have, which is, is just so very important. Now, yeah. Well, I do appreciate that, Paul. And the reason I put it on the bottom shelf is because that's where I live. <laughs> that's right. But in a sense, it's important, isn't it? You know, uh, it's easy to some. It's actually sometimes easier to go to a, a church and use big words so that old ladies will come up to us afterwards and pat us on the heads and say that was very clever. Didn't understand a word, but it was, sounded clever. But... Right. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to knock the upper echelon of the presuppositional world, but I think a lot of them do not take these arguments out to the street. So a lot of it, you know, they're very philosophical, and that's how I learned it. So I would take philosophical arguments out in the street, and people, their eyes would glaze over. Then I realized it's not about the philosophy of it. Before, we were duped arguing evidences for hours, and now we're duped arguing the preconditions of intelligibility for hours, rather than talking about the foundation of the apologetic, which is what we're going to get into, but it's about the glory of God. I say, if, if you are a Christian, you can defend your faith. Jesus Christ did not say, my sheep here size really good argument. Yeah. He said, my sheep hear my voice. He said, I will give you a mouth and wisdom that your adversaries will not be able to resist or contradict. That's not that I will give it to them. So often people say, I wish Sai was here. I wish he could. I say, you know, they, they want to say what they want to think about what I would say in that situation. I say, I want to hear what you would say. Talk about the God that saved you. Yes. Now, because we're talking about the God that we know. Okay, and this is this, uh, and this is actually something right. I really need to get onto soon. But before I do that, I want to lead into it because um, there is a film coming out at the moment. Now there are a couple of Christian movies that people want to talk about. You and I could probably spend hours talking about uh, Harris is in the shack or something like that. I'm just not going to get into that at the moment. But there is another movie which has a. Um, I think we can probably both agree has a much better motivation behind it that we are still both concerned about. And that's the movie The Case for Christ that's coming out soon. And, of course, that's based on the best-selling book uh, by Lee Strobel that goes with it. There was a video out a few years ago uh, with, uh, of a talk that... Uh, 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 that Lee Strobel gave, and now there's a, a an action movie. A script has been written. There is a movie coming out shortly, and in some ways, I'm almost dare I say it more concerned about that because, of course, it has been written. I think we can probably say from a good motivation. Would you agree with me? Absolutely, I, I do believe that Lee Strobel is a brother in the Lord. I think you know he defends the faith the way that I used. I loved his books, The Case for Faith. You know, the, the, the case for Christ, I loved his books, but why did I love them? I loved them because I was a Christian. 
But then I saw that using those arguments out in the world was actually not a biblical approach to defending our faith. But, I mean, we can get into presuppositionalism now. And the analogy that I, I shared with you down in Florida, I don't know if you'd heard it before or not, but is the analogy of a courtroom. Somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God. And what do we do? We give them evidences. We give them the case for God. We give them the case for a creator. And I say, well, where do you hear evidences out in the world? Well, in a courtroom. It's the case for something. Now, who do you give evidences to in the courtroom? You give evidence to the judge and the jury. So if an unbeliever comes up to you and says, well, give me a case for a creator or give me a case for Christ, and you fill them with evidences, who are you saying is the judge? You're saying that the unbeliever is the judge and jury. And where do we put the Lord of glory? We place him into the criminal's box. And that's why I'm just as passionate today as I was 14 years ago or so when I first heard about this apologetic, because it puts God in the rightful position, or it shows that he is the judge overall, and that we're not giving evidences to the unbeliever to convince them that God exists, because Scripture says they already know. Now, can we use evidences, you know, the case for Christ? Absolutely. But this is for somebody who does not deny the existence of God. You know, somebody who needs, you know, clarification about who Jesus is. I mean, we could use evidences, but that's not the angle of this book. This book is trying to con convince people of the historical Jesus right. so that they'll believe. Yeah. And that, that's problematic because, I mean, you're trying to convince people that a man who was dead for three days came back to life. And the problem with that is you could succeed. And they could say, wow, that's really interesting. Phone Ripley's Believe It or Not. Tomorrow, we'll, you know, in the future, we'll know why a man who was dead came back to life three days later. But you didn't prove that he's God. And that's the problem, because you can win the argument and be at the exact same footing. Another problem with this, you could win the argument, and I say, okay, now I want to become a Christian, because you've convinced them based on their standards. I say, who is the judge? In that situation, they're still the judge. Now, can God save people through that? We talked about that before. God can strike a straight blow with a bent stick. However, it could be the case that somebody is convinced because they're convinced of the evidence, they're still the authority, they're still the judge, and they're not real Christians. And one way, one way that I use to identify that, to expose that, I say, which evidence could make you no longer a Christian? And if they provide me with some evidence that would make them no longer a Christian, I would say it follows that you're not a Christian. Because people say, you know, I've heard Christians, you know, on the radio say, what evidence would make me no longer a Christian if they found the bones of Jesus Christ? I say, well, if that's the case, then you're, an you're a Christian based on the evidence. You're still the judge. I'm saying it's impossible for them to find the bones of Jesus Christ because then you couldn't even make sense of your argument. Now, now from our point of view, you know, and, and I was saved hearing evidences like that. But the point is that we look back in the past. You know, when I became a Christian, I know that it was sort of almost in my head singing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus and so on. And the point is, it doesn't, it doesn't nullify that, that I don't believe in that method, uh, methodology anymore. It doesn't say that I wasn't saved then. I was saved then. The point is that I was looking at everything from a human perspective, whereas now understanding a bit more, nowhere near enough yet, but understanding a bit more about the sovereignty of God, I realized that it was his plan. He decided, he decided that Paul Taylor would follow Jesus. Uh, that makes a bit of a longer song. It doesn't scan quite, but that's the theology. And, um, and, and, and that's why when I read a book like The Case for Christ, as you were saying, I, I thought it was absolutely wonderful because I believed in the resurrection. I believed all that. And it was just wonderful to have that. And you start to think, well, why is no one else being convinced by that? You give it to somebody and they're not convinced by it, probably. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit hasn't opened their eyes in that particular way. We can't argue someone into the kingdom in that way. Right. We can get into defining the term presuppositions. And for those who have heard me before, they've heard this analogy. But I say, if you put a fossil between a believer and unbeliever, the believer looks at that and says, oh, Noah's flood. The unbeliever looks at that same fossil yeah. and says, oh, millions of years. It's the same evidence. Why do we come to different conclusions? Not because of the evidence, because we have PhDs on both sides examining that evidence. We come to different conclusions based on our pre-beliefs our presuppositions. So that's what a presuppositionalist does. And I know one of the things you want to talk about in this interview is the attitude of some presuppositionalists. Because what I say is that they've been beaten down with terrible arguments their entire life. They've been losing these arguments. And now they find a biblical apologetic and they want to go out and they want to return the favor. But they don't do it with grace. And they, they return the favor also to people who yes. profess evidentialism. What they forget and what they don't remember is that they were saved as evidentialists. You know, they should talk to their pre-selves. People ask me, you know, how I can maintain my composure out in the street. I say, there, but by the grace of God, go I. 
And I think of 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do we have that we did not receive? And why do we boast as though we did not receive it? And a lot of times there's arrogance because now you can win arguments. And I, I'm, I, you know, I won't, don't want to go on, but I was at a conference once and I went up to the microphone. I said, you know what the beauty of this apologetic is? Yeah. You're going to win arguments. I said, but do you know what the danger of this apologetic is? You're going to win arguments. And the problem is you're going to think it's you rather than like the unworthy servant giving glory to Almighty God, because people want the praise. People want to be slapped on the back when they win an argument instead of glory, giving glory to God. And that's what presuppositionalism is, Absolutely. is giving glory to God. I thought it was important that we sort of lay that background. We've done that for a few minutes now, uh, but we, we, uh, we have quite rightly, in my view, been covering some of the ground that we've already covered on this podcast. And I have been teaching our folks about uh, presuppositional apologetics. They've got the, uh, uh, the definitions and so on. And uh, as I said, we, you need to, to check out size material on this. It's very important to do so. But now, as, you, as you've mentioned, this is really what I want to get into. I want to talk about the state of presuppositionalism at the moment, because I've noticed a couple of things. And I'd like to do your comments on this. You, you've commented a little bit, and hopefully you'll expand that, on uh, the people who've uh, adopted presuppositionalism because they want to win those arguments and may not be doing it with quite so much grace. But I've also noticed um, there have been a number of, of perhaps younger Christians, I don't know whether they are, I hope they are in many ways, that they'll learn, but there's people who've said that they've adopted presuppositionalism perhaps as one more tool in their toolbox you know and i've i've heard people say or read comments on facebook of well i'll use the presuppositional position if that matters or i'll do or i'll do something else and and people have asked you know who do you recommend to get into apologetics and immediately the first names that they've poured out have been evidential apologists and Am, am, I, am, I, am I on a different track here, or do you see that there is a danger at the moment in a sort of immaturity among those who've adopted the idea of presuppositional apologetics? Yes, absolutely. Like I say, because a lot of them, it's a relief for them because now they can go out and win arguments. But one of the analogies that you mentioned was the tool in the toolbox. And there's famous people who call themselves presuppositionalists who use that very analogy. But Greg Bonson, and we're of the Bonson-Ventillion stripe, um, he would say presuppositional is not a tool in the toolbox. It's the very floor on which the toolbox sits. You can't make sense of tools. You can't make sense of anything unless you start with God. And one of the things that exposes a misunderstanding of the apologetic, and you know, I know that people, their hearts are in the right place, but I get young people asking me quite often, Sai, how do I do this? How do I do presuppositional apologetics? How do I do it in this situation? I say, you don't do it. You live it. Presuppositionalism is not a methodology to do. It's about honoring the God that saved you. And the problem is most of the arguments that we give, and we do in good faith, I don't deny that, but most of the arguments that we give, we're lying about God. We're talking about some kind of probability. And if you ask me, how do I do this? Then it's, then it's, it's just a methodology. It's not talking about the God that saved you. Because, and, and this, I, you know, I've said it before too, it's women that have helped me understand this apologetic because they're not into the philosophy. I mean, some of them are, granted, and I'm not saying that they're, they're, they're dumber. And I am single, but that's not the case. But I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the case. It's just that defending our faith is more relational. We're talking about the God that saved us. Because I can still remember the very first conference I was out, I was teaching this apologetic, and I was talking about the preconditions of intelligibility. And the guys were taking notes. They thought, oh, man, I can really wield this out there. And the women, their eyes were glazed over. They thought, I had to learn all these evidences, and now I have to learn the preconditions of intelligibility. You know, the thing is, it's relational. And I, and I think about the Apostle Peter. Can you imagine if you went up to him and you said, well, can you tell me about the preconditions of intelligibility, how belief in God is necessary to make it? You know, he'd say, what are you talking about? Talk about the Lord that saved you. Now, there is a place for the philosophy, you know, especially in this day and age for people who want to give philosophical arguments against, against the existence of God. It's great to have that in your back pocket. But I would just as soon have somebody say, you know, I don't really know what you're talking about, but this is what the Bible says about you. You know, and that's what our that's what presuppositionalism presuppositionalism is. It's telling people about what the Bible says about right. them, about our ultimate authority. Uh, I and, and we can get into these technicalities, don't we? You and I will tell people, you know, you need to have a, a high view of the sovereignty of God. Um, you know, an essential book on your bookshelf needs to be A.W. Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God. You need to be reading through that. You need to be understanding about the attributes of God and so on. But there is a purpose behind those, isn't there? 
It's not for winning arguments. If we're studying the attributes of God and studying the sovereignty of God, we're doing that for a particular purpose, in my opinion. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I tell people is that not all Christians will get this apologetic, but only Christians will. Because there are a lot of people, I'm sure, in conferences that attend these conferences who aren't really believers, who aren't saved, who are looking for that tool in the toolbox. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't Christians like that. However, it may be the case that a lot of people are not saved at all. Because one of the best uh, results that I get when I go to a conference is people come up to me with their tears in their eyes saying, that's the God I believe in. See, because there are other people who are seeking to win. The The argument is already won. As Christians, we know that. The argument is It's a slam dunk. I mean... Scripture says that unbelief is folly. It's foolishness. The argument is won. Now, we know that salvation is up to the Holy Spirit. You know, this is not the silver bullet, but instead of seeking to win the argument, we should seek to win the person. And this is what I tell people when they're out on the street or even in a Facebook chat, chat, and I'm probably guilty of it as well. But if they come into that conversation at any point, at the beginning, at the end, at the middle, if they come into that conversation at any point and it does not look like you want that person to be saved— that's You're right. probably doing it wrong. This is, this is the thing that has been concerning me, which is why I wanted to chat to you about this uh, on air, because uh, um, I, I've been looking at various things on, on Facebook. I've been talking to people. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm quite happy to discuss, you know, where, where people have got things wrong when they're dealing with evidential apologetics, you know, that they're producing evidences to try and get people to believe in God. So they're pointing people towards a God who's the result of an argument, a God of probability, which, you know, we've said many times, and I've said on this podcast, that's not the true God. If you're doing that, you're, you're arguing for a probable God. That's not the God of the Bible. But even so, in presuppositional circles, there have been people who seem on the surface to have wanted to start from God, to say God exists, let's take the consequences of that, let's look at that. But it's still been a question of, here's a scenario, how does a presuppositionalist deal with this particular scenario? And there's a problem with posing that question, there's a problem then with those who've answered and said, oh, you need to read and give a list of various different evidential apologists at that point. Well, I think you've, you might have seen the meme that I made up in response to that, and I post it regularly now when people say, how do I answer this? And my, my meme, it's a picture of me with a scowl on my face, and it says, that's not what the Bible says. It's that simple. Now, the thing is, you can get into the philosophy of it. It depends. You know, people have to differentiate between a nice conversation at a coffee shop with their friend and they have a genuine question. Go ahead and answer it. But I think that we should yeah. preface our answers with, well, that's not what the Bible says. You know, I don't believe in, in Noah's Ark, you know, all these things. Yeah. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it happened. And I tell people often on the street, too, because the Bible says some amazing things. It says that a donkey talked. It says that a man who was dead for three days came back to life. Those are amazing things. And what do evidentials try and do? Yeah. They try to prove to people that these things can happen. Yeah. I mean, that's absurd. You can't prove outside of God that these things can happen. So I ask them. I say, look. You would admit that God could do all of these things. Well, sure, if he exists, sure he could. Okay, so your issue is not the issue of miracles. I don't have to prove them to you. Your issue is with the existence of God. Because if you start with the existence of God, I don't have to prove anything to you. That's why it's a worldview apologetic. It's the whole enchilada, so to speak. If you get them on, you know, well, of course you can, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, if they understand this apologetic, you don't have to prove miracles to people. Because, of course, God can do these things. And I further, I go on to say, here's the problem. Since your problem is with God, you can't even make sense of your objections to my to the miracles in the Bible. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> you know, I, I say, well, listen to this. You're saying that because of all these things, you object to the veracity of the Bible. You're saying, therefore, the Bible cannot be true. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I say, well, listen to what your objection assumes. Your ad- objection assumes that there's a standard of truth. And, sir, please tell me. How you get truth from evolved primordial soup. And, and Doug Wilson uses the experiment of taking a, a can of Dr. Pepper and a can of Mountain Dew and shaking them and opening them, and they start to fizz. He says, if evolution were true, that would be what our thoughts are. Brain fizz. Or I've devolved, I brought it down to the bottom shelf. I said, it'd be like brain barf. And you want one fizz to try and tell the other fizz that it's not true. I said, that's what evolution is. So when you start without God, you can't even make sense of your objections to the Bible. 
And that's the problem. I don't have to prove miracles. Now, is it nice to have evidence for miracles? Sure. Yeah. But I don't need it for my faith. I mean, you and I have, have said, you know, the, the, the idea of evidence of miracles is we start by saying this is the God we believe in. Therefore, we expect this, this and this to happen. That's the consequences of it. So the evidence is. Yeah. And, you know, you know why David Hume denied miracles? <laughs> That's right. Because they were miraculous. <laughs> so what do you do then? I mean, he's denied them on the very basis. So you can't prove something to people who has a presupposition that the supernatural doesn't exist. Because if you prove the event, they'll just have another explanation for it. The sort of almost cage stage presuppositional apologists then, the immature presuppositional apologists uh, putting their comments on Facebook and so on, is that they are seeking a methodology. Um, you know, they're seeking something that uh, they, they've, they've understood the concept that uh, an evidential system is, ar is, is arguing towards a probable God that, uh, that is not the God of the Bible. So they want an alternative methodology. And therefore, I'm a little bit concerned at the moment as to where that motivation comes from. I'm not ascribing a bad motivation to them, but I'm wondering what's behind what they say. Now, you touched on this earlier. You know, you and I are going to be using a presuppositional apologetic because we are saved, we're Christians, we're trying to tell people about the God. Well, here's the phrase that you've often used, and maybe we need to unpack this phrase because I'm not sure that I heard you fully unpack it, but we're trying to show people about the God that we adore, and you've used that phrase a lot. Now, just tell me a little bit about why you use that phrase when you're talking to people. You know, I'm, 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 I'm talking about the God who I adore. Well, that's the example I give when I go to a conference. You know, I stand up there and I say, you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to apologize to your pastor right off the bat, but I've changed my topic today. I'm not going to teach you how to defend your faith in God. I'm going to teach you how to defend your faith that your parents exist. And they look at me like I have two heads. And I love the look. They think, why do we need some bald-headed freak from Canada coming here to teach me how to defend the faith of my parents? I said, why would that be crazy? That would be crazy because you know your parents. You know your parents better than I know your parents. I said, but think about it. What am I doing coming here teaching you how to defend your faith in God? And I say, this is not a slight on you because I was sitting in that very seat, you know, however many years ago. Looking for evidence is to try and prove the existence of the God that I adore. I say, if you know that God like you know your parents, you can defend your faith in him. And that's why I say, you know, at the end of the conference, if you walk away from here thinking I have to read this book or I have to study more, I failed. I had a fellow come up to me at one conference. He says, Sai, I hear you're a really great apologist. I want you to teach me. All I do is answer with scripture. I said, don't listen to a word I say. And that's the goal. That's what I'm working towards. Because even when I'm out in the street, my, my, you know, when I get back at the end of the day, I don't think, oh, I wish I knew more philosophy or I wish I knew more evidence. My thought every time is I wish I knew my Bible more. And that's what this apologetic does. It drives you back to scripture because that's what God uses to convert people, the gospel. And that's what we have to get back to. And that's what the foundation of this apologetic is, the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. That that's what he uses to save people. To the, the point that I, that I, I think is, is worth getting onto here. You know, I remember talking very recently, you know, and my wife was in the, uh, the congregation at the back, but I hadn't introduced her at that stage. And, uh, I'm saying, you know, I'm, I, 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 I'm married. Um, um, she's called Jerry. Here's a picture of her birth certificate. You know, I've got that slide up there. Well, I hear a rumor that it's possible to forge birth certificates. <laughs> there may be even some important people who have been. <laughs> You know, here's, here's our marriage certificate. Um, here is a police photo fit ID of her. Here's the, you know, the building that... Uh, that's not actually introducing her. So actually, for people to know her, what I've got to do is call her over and say, here she is, you know, say a few words. That's the analogy that you're saying when you're talking about defending faith in, in their parents, because the parents exist, they know them. It doesn't make sense. In other words, perhaps some people are getting what they hope is a biblical apologetic because they want to do the right thing. They've been persuaded intellectually of the uh, biblical case, but they may not actually know God. 
They know about him. Right, exactly. Because, I mean, you use the marriage analogy, which I use often, too. I say, can you, let's say I say, well, how's your relationship with your wife? Well, I have a wonderful, loving relationship with my wife. I'm just not sure she exists. You know, you'd, you'd think that was insane. And I've gone to college campuses and I've asked the question, are you a Christian? Yes. How's your relationship with the Lord? Oh, we're buds. You know, I've had the very word said to me, we're, we're great friends, we're, we're buds. I said, could you be wrong about the existence of God? He said, yeah, I suppose I could be. You know, and they don't see the disconnect there. They adore their wife. They can't be wrong about her existence. I mean, you can't be wrong about the existence of God. And here's the thing, though, and, and the reassuring thing about it is that according to Scripture, everyone knows that God exists. So what they profess when they're not certain about God, I don't think it's what they really believe. That's why I'm not saying that they're not Christians. I'm saying that they're saying what the world has duped them into saying, because that's the acceptable answer. You'll be invited into the party if you could be wrong. You won't be invited into the party if you stand at the door and say, you need to repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Then you won't. People don't want certainty. And if you come up with a certain apologetic, and that's I think a lot of Christians don't like it on that basis because they like to keep their pet sins. And if God has certainly exists, if he certainly exists and has certainly revealed himself, then you can't sleep with your girlfriend. You can't cheat on your taxes. There is no wiggle room. Yeah. God is a certain God and he makes certain it's demands on our lives. The issue of knowing God and knowing that you know God and this, uh, again, you've used the phrase relationship, haven't you, as well in this, which again might be an odd word for some people who are being schooled in apologetics methodologies. Um, you know, we, we've got this system, we're going to say this, this, and this, we're going to do all this. But you're talking about relationships, <laughs> you know, and, and it's a relationship with God. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I've been to um, apologetic conferences where people say, especially out on the street, you know, because we've done open-air preaching. I know you joined me in Ohio that one time. And they say, don't give your personal testimony. And I know why that's the case, because some people like to ramble on about themselves. But the thing is, that is my favorite part of hearing a person stand in the open air and preach. But these are for people who are genuinely Christians because they can relate to the person out there. You know, and, and I still remember the very first time I did anything out in the open air, we had an atheist and he came up, a professed atheist, of course, I say, because there's no such thing as atheists, technically, according to what scripture says. But he went, went up to my friend Dustin Seegers and he was incensed because my friend Dustin was talking about hell. And he said, sir, are you trying to tell me that most of the people in the world are going to hell? He, re he replied to me, he said, sir, you know, I think most people in church are going to hell. And it floored him. And we had a wonderful conversation with this man. Now, is that the case? I don't know. But I think there's a lot of what we call cultural Christians who do not go to the Bible as their authority. And I think a lot of the cases because they're embarrassed too. But that's one of the things that this apologetic does. I say it's a worldview apologetic. I've had young men uh, contact me and say before understanding this apologetic, they were afraid to go to certain YouTube videos done by atheists because they thought it would shake their faith. Now they understand this biblical apologetic. They go to those same uh, atheist YouTube videos and they laugh, not at the plight of the unbeliever, but at the folly of unbelief. So that's why I say it's a worldview apologetic. It's not just a cool way to argue. It's life changing. And if people take it as a cool way to argue, then they've got it wrong. And I believe that's so important. I mean, I recall um, hearing a, a major creationist speaker who you and I both uh, know about um, saying one time, and I think he got this right on this issue, he said you know, that he was uh, all at one time for presenting people evidence that will prove to them that evolution is not true, that, uh, that Genesis is true. And he said, if that's all I do, then somebody else will give them alternative evidence that will prove them the other way then I've got to give them more evidence that will answer that. Then they'll get more evidence from the other side. And at the end of the day, all you're doing is you're just piling up. There's always going to be another evidence seen from another angle that will say something different. Um, the question is not the evidence itself, but what's the background to that? Right. Right. Cornelius Van Til uses the analogy of a bottomless pit behind his back or behind the unbeliever's back. And they'll take your evidence and throw it over their yeah. shoulder into that pit. And they'll keep on going, and that will go on forever. And, you know, that's why And, and um, Greg Bontz uses the analogy of going into a room with no doors, and the unbeliever has a gun, and he's firing bullets at you. Now, you can learn one of two things. You can learn how to try to dodge bullets, or you can learn how to take away the gun. And most people are learning how to dodge bullets. What do I say in this case? What do I say in this case? What do I say? And you got to keep dodging bullets 
And one of them is going to wing you because you don't know the answer. However, if you learn how to take away the gun, then that's what this apologetic is and that's what it does. It's talking about the glory of God. And you can go out there with confidence. You can go out there with confidence and defend your faith with anybody. And, you know, that's how it should be. That's what Jesus said. I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That's not the professional apologist. That's you. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's, it's helpful, too, that I'm a factory worker. I mean, I was a boiler operator for most of my life. And I've debated PhDs in philosophy. And people see that and think, wow, he's really smart. No, that's not the case. They see me doing that and they think, well, I can do that. They watch William Lane Craig do a debate and they say, I can never do that. He's brilliant. And one of the best compliments I get when I watch one of my debates is, oh, I can do that. He's an idiot. Because again, we're I say, amen. To, uh, get, get people to a higher intellectual level with the idea that once you pass a certain intellectual level, God's going to accept you. That's not the way it works. Instead, we're introducing people to the God that we know. And yeah, uh, 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 someone with a major intellect can do that. Right. You know, our, our, our friend Jason Lyle is head and shoulders above the intellect that, I, that you and I have. I think we can say that. But we know that he's also a man who's, uh, who's using this same apologetic because that's where it lasts. And uh, on the other hand, we can get uh, ordinary thickos like me and like you. And <laughs> but the point is who wins. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Paul, you're uh, head and shoulders above me as well. But one of the analogies that, that I really like, I heard it from Greg Bonson at one time. He says, imagine somebody comes up to you and asks you a question and they're speaking German. And you don't know a word of German. And you try and fumble out an answer. Ich bin Lederhosen. You know, you would sound like an idiot. But the humble and kind thing to do would be, I'm sorry, I don't understand German. Could you bring that down to my level and then I'll try and give you a response? Anybody can do that, but that takes humility. You know, and that's what we need to do. When somebody comes at you with this philosophical argument, look, I really don't understand what you said just there, but if you could break it down so that I can understand it, and that's what we need to do, and that we need to love the person that we're talking to. And I say, if you don't love the person that you're talking to, if you're not prepared to love them, then abandon your desire for apologetics that's because, right. you know, You've, we uh, need to love those we engage. The names Greg Bonson a few times in our conversation. You've mentioned the name Cornelius Van Til. Are there therefore things that you would recommend to uh, our folks that they need to look at to study? <laughs> well, uh, there's a good friend of mine named uh, Paul Taylor, and I would recommend that they pick up his book Only Believe. <laughs> and you did. Yes. <laughs> and you did mention um, Jason Lyle as well. Now, the thing is, I have the books by Bonds and I have the books by Van Til, and they're all very good. But I think as a starting point, I would probably pick up Jason Lyle's, well, of course, your book, Only Believe, but Jason Lyle's The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And then from there, go on to um, uh, Greg Bonson's book, uh, Presuppositional Apologetics Stated and Defended, which I found is his uh, easiest work. And then there's uh, Always Ready by Greg Bonson. But, you know, people can go to my website, proofthatgodexists.org, and they could, you know, watch some of the videos, some of the exchanges. The problem with that is right. a lot of times people will see the exchange and not really understand the apologetic. I mean, I've had it in conferences where people have said, I watched your film and I hated you. And I think, and so I've had it, thankfully, I've had it that people have seen it. They said, the first time I saw it, I hated you. And then I watched it again. And then I watched it again. And then I got what was going on. That, you know, it's not that you're being a jerk. It's that you have a passion for them. You don't want them to blindly, well, not blindly, but you don't want them to willingly walk into hell. And that's what I say. I don't like to coddle people into hell. Now, I'm not beyond having an edge. And I appreciate when people correct me on that. But I want to speak the truth to them in love and the hope that the Holy Spirit uses it to open their eyes. We will always take that criticism if somebody says, you know, you're being a jerk or whatever. But there is the other angle that you can be too unpassionate about things. You know, after all, if I was in a conversation and somebody was saying nasty things about my mother in that conversation, I wouldn't just give them an intellectual argument back, would I? You know, there'd be some passion behind that, wouldn't there? Well, I've used that very analogy. Somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, I think your wife is a prostitute. You wouldn't say, well, last night she was making dinner for me. So I'm pretty sure she wasn't walking the street. And the night before that, she was at her parents' house. So I don't think she was walking. And the night before that, she had choir practice. So I'm pretty sure she wasn't walking the street. You had not given evidential argument for the veracity of your wife. You'd say, that's my wife you're talking about. 
you better be very careful with your next words. Yes. And when somebody says that they don't believe in God, what are they doing? They just call God a liar. They just right. blaspheme the God that we adore. And we say, here, let me give you some evidence. Let me give you some evidence that God is not a liar. Now, of course, you know, we have to, of course, meet them where they're at. But I say, look, I will talk with you. But when you say that you don't believe in God, that's a very dangerous thing because you're calling him a liar. And I'm going to give you a lot of truth today. And people are sent to hell according to the amount of truth they get and reject. I said, so this conversation today could be the worst day of your life. Because if you walk away from here and if you don't put your trust in Jesus Christ before you die, this could be bad news for you because I'm going to give you truth today. Having that sort of insulting attitude to God is not because... Uh, we're intellectually attached there, that we're uh, we're unaffected by it, or it shouldn't be that. It should be, our calmness should be there simply because that's what God has commanded. He has commanded us to address that, to defend our faith with meekness and fear. Um, You know, and if he hadn't put that phrase in there, maybe it would have been right on that situation to bop them on the nose because of what they've said. But uh, God has commanded Mm -hmm. us to have that calmness, uh, but there should still be that passion behind us. Amen. And I think we also have to think about the plight of the unbeliever. Because, I mean, I've had it before. There's one time in particular that I remember. It was a debate that I did with uh, Paul Baird in England. And I was I had a recorded copy of it before it was aired. And my friend, I was playing it, you know, on, on the phone, I believe it was, and my friend was listening to it. And he was, actually, no, I was in person now that I recall, because he was laughing and he was high-fiving me. He was, you know, this is fantastic. The fist bump, the whole thing. And I let him. I let him because it was a relief for him to finally hear a biblical defense of the faith. But at the end of that, I said, this is not funny. I said, that person is going to hell, except if not for the grace of God. And I said, and not only that, that person is us, except for the grace of God. Now, the unbeliever will say things that make you chuckle. You can't help but laugh at the absurdity of it. But we cannot forget the fact that there but the grace of God go I. And if not for the grace of God, they're going to hell. And C.S. Lewis, and I don't know what you feel about him. I think there's some problems with his theology. But one thing he said I thought was very interesting is we're talking to eternal beings. He said, now, if you saw those people in their glorified state, if they were a Christian, you would talk to them. You would almost want to worship them for how they would look in heaven or you would run away in fear. If how for how they would look in hell. And that's when we talk to somebody, that's what we should think about. Not just some idle person that we're talking to, that you're talking about eternal beings. And you would either worship them or, or be tended, you know, have a tendency to want to worship them, or you would run away from fear from them yes. in fear. Uh, and that's I think how we should I address the unbeliever when we talk to them. My sort of opinion on C.S. Lewis and quoting him is probably all pretty much identical to yours. For some reason, for some reason, I don't know why. I tend to give him a lot of grace in the fact that he <laughs> believed some things that were just downright wrong. But, you know, when he said something like what you just said, or when he said something like, I believe in Christianity, not because, uh, uh, like, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's a, that's a presuppositional statement, yeah. Amen, yeah, and I have some quotes of... Yeah. I have some quotes of his on, on my website. Of course, people list all of his heresies. But you know, we believe in a God of grace. Is he a believer? Is he in heaven today? I don't know. I can't say that about anybody. However, I hope that he is. And I mean, we, this is kind of a tangent, but one of the stories that I talk about that is one of my favorite in Scripture is with Elisha and, um, and Naaman. Yes. And Naaman had leprosy. And Naaman went to Elisha to be healed. And he healed him. And I mean, the story is, is very involved, but I think it's in uh, First or Second Kings 5. I can't remember. I think it's First Kings 5. And at the end of that, Naaman says, well, I got to go back to my job now. And my job is to help my king, yes. you know, get around because he's a frail man. But one of the things I have to do is help him bow before the false god Rimen. Yes. I help him bow before this false god. And he says, and when he bows, I bow. He says, will you forgive your servant of this one thing? What would 99% of Christians say? Oh, you got to quit your job. You can't do that. You're a, you're a believer now. But I say, what did Elisha say to him? Mm-hmm. Three powerful words. He said, go in peace. Now, does that mean that on the way back to his land that Naaman wouldn't say, i, I got to quit my job. I really can't do Maybe. Does that mean that Naaman would say, now I'm a believer. When I help him kneel down, I'll talk about the God that saved me. <laughs> Maybe. But that's the God I believe in. He's a God of grace. And, you know, how that plays out in Naaman's life, I don't know. But I, I explain this story to people and I say, what did Elisha say to him? Mm. And they'll say, well, name you can't do that anymore. Yeah. 
That's not that's not what my God said. That's a big thing. My God through the prophet Elijah said, go in peace. I'm absolutely sure you're right. Uh, I'm absolutely sure you're right. Um, what I want people to do, Sires um, um, uh, has been kind enough to mention my book. I really want people to, to go and look at uh, How to Answer the Fool, the, 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 uh, the lengthy but easy to follow uh, progress of, uh, of, of bringing this apologetic to the streets. And also, as you've mentioned, Sire, you've got some short videos on your site. But uh, I really think people need to understand the heart behind that, that you're talking about the God who you adore, the God who you know not the God who you've just developed a methodology to defend. Um, and that's going to be, that's so important. This is the point that we've been trying to get across in this conversation. This is about who we know and who we love. Uh, and we're trying to introduce people to the God that we know and the God that we love. And, uh, so, yeah. Yes. Amen, brother. That, yes. Yeah, that's what I want people to walk so away from really this and well, I can do that. Today, si, I already knew that. Amen. I'm sure that there'll be some other occasion when uh, uh, we'll need to bring you back if you're willing and clarify a few other things. But for the moment, just thank you for, for that. Well, Paul, it was great to see you again. It was uh, really uh, heartwarming because, you know, we're good friends and we're miles apart now. And for those of people, you know, who follow my ministry, who see this for the first time, you're the curator of the Mount St. Helens Creation Museum. And I encourage people to go and check that out as well. It's a wonderful uh, thing. Paul actually took myself uh, and my friend Robert Gray on a tour up there one time. And it, it was just amazing. And I encourage people to go up there and uh, check out that museum. Well, that's all from this episode of The Mountain and the Word. I hope you've enjoyed it. Many thanks again to my special guest for today's program, Cy Ten kate You can catch his uh, information at the website proofthatgodexists.com. You need to go there and you need to get hold of his video, uh, well, his DVD rather, How to Answer the Fool. Um, if you want to keep up to date with these podcasts, make sure that your podcasting software is up to date so that you don't miss a single episode of The Mountain and the Word. Thank you. Goodbye. And God bless. was The Mountain and the Word, an audio podcast show from the Mount St. Helens Creation Center. For more information, visit our website, mshcreationcenter.org.